How long do you think it would take to climb Mount Everest? Would it take a day? Would it take a week? Maybe two weeks? Well, according to an article uh, at CNN.com entitled Dreaming of Climbing Mount Everest, this is what it takes. Mountaineers must trek for two months to reach the summit of Mount Everest. And those two months include the first two weeks of just trying to get to the Everest base camp. And then they have to take two weeks to get used to the climate before they spend days on end going from camp to camp until they finally reach the top. So two months to scale 29,031.7 feet of a massive chunk of rock and ice that has endured for 500 million years. Mount Everest is a symbol of permanence and immovability. And mountains themselves, especially in the Bible, are pictures of how earth touches heaven, of the high point of the earth, and of things that are immovable, of things that last throughout time. Which makes the imagery in Habakkuk chapter 3 even more striking. Because in Habakkuk chapter 3, we see a vision of God causing the mountains to shrink, causing the mountains to shake, causing them to be moved and writhe in pain and even scatter. So the glory of God, the immensity of God, the, the, the power of God is of such a magnitude that mountains pale in comparison. And it's this terrifying vision of the power of God that Habakkuk brings to light through this prayer in chapter 3. This is Understanding Habakkuk. The book of Habakkuk begins in chapter 1 with a series of laments or complaints over God's apparent lack of response to Israel's suffering. So Israel's suffering under the boot of Babylon, this vicious and terrifying empire, and Habakkuk, a prophet, is asking God, why are you letting this happen? And uh, Habakkuk 2 shows God's response to Habakkuk's complaint. And God tells him, write this vision down. I'm going to judge Babylon. I'm going to save you by destroying your enemies, but I'm going to do it at my appointed time. So it's not going to be your timing, it's going to be my timing. Therefore, if you're righteous, if you're one of my people, you're going to trust in my faithfulness. You're going to endure the present suffering because you know that I'm going to work it out in the end. Now, Habakkuk chapter 3 is a prayer that's disconnected in time from 1 and 2. It might be written at a later time, but it's still relevant in theme. And in this prayer, Habakkuk gives us both a vision of God's wrath and praise for God's mercy. This is Habakkuk chapter 3. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shikianath. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Taman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction, 
the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flocks be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments. Habakkuk begins his book by working from his circumstances to God's character. Israel is suffering under Babylon's might, and God doesn't seem to care. So what does this say about God? Okay, circumstances to character. But in chapter 3, Habakkuk works from God's character to his circumstances. If God is the just and righteous judge of the world, then Babylon cannot escape his justice. This is who God is, and through that lens, I'm going to view my present situation and my future. Now, Habakkuk's vision in chapter 3 can be broken into two parts. God's march of war in verses 3 to 7, and God's overwhelming power in verses 8 to 15. So in verses 3 to 7, we see God marching out into battle. He begins from Teman and Mount Paran, which refers to a mountainous region in the south. And he continues on with splendor and light into the nations. It's like this trail of glory that goes everywhere that he goes. And pestilence and plague follow at his heels, which is a clear reference to the Exodus, right? When God's power and glory is manifested in his judgments of plague and disease and famine over the nation of Egypt. So he brings this Exodus language and he applies it to the whole world. God is measuring and shaking out the nations to judge their deeds. And God brings the same kind of wrath that made Kushan, also known as Midian, tremble in Numbers chapter 31. So notice that Habakkuk is looking to the past. These are your past works. I've heard of these reports of you, Lord. And if that's who you were in the past, that's who you will be in the present, and that's who you'll be in the future. Your character is unchanging. So your past works inform me of your future faithfulness. So in verses 8 through 15, in the second part, when we see God's overwhelming power, we see a lot of symbolic decreation language. So if you've been following some of the other minor prophets we've looked at, decreation language is very common. 
It's a way to symbolize utter destruction. It's, it's the falling of a society. It's the crumbling of the foundations of a nation under the judgment of God. And you can see God pours out his anger against the waters. He splits the earth with his arrows. He freezes the sun and moon in place. And he crushes the nations who war against his people. There's military language. It's very deliberate. It's meant to parallel the military language about Babylon that we see in chapter 1. However powerful the chariots and armies of Babylon are, God is immensely more powerful. And in the same way that Babylon steamrolls all of its opponents, God steamrolls not only his opponents, but all of creation. God is one-upping Babylon at every step. God has is furiously marching through the earth with his wrath. And this is a picture of what is called the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord, again, it's, it's a common prophetic theme. The day of the Lord is a term that can refer either to a judgment within history. So the Exodus is a day of the Lord. God judging the Babylonians is a day of the Lord. But it can also point forward to the ultimate day of the Lord when God judges the nations. And I think this is a picture, a little bit of both. It's showing the judgment of Babylon, but it's also a paradigm or a foretaste of God's ultimate judging of the whole world. And when God judges the whole world, that will also simultaneously be the salvation of his righteous people. So Habakkuk sees his vision of God's future judgment of Babylon, which is a model of God's ultimate judgment of all the nations. And he responds with, fear with trembling at this terrifying vision. But he finds in the midst of his fear a balm of hope. Notice what he says in 3.16. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Habakkuk is a righteous man who trusts in God's faithfulness. His present circumstances are dire, but he knows the character and promises of God. And so he can be faithful in the present because he trusts in God's unchanging faithfulness. He can actually quietly wait and even rejoice in his difficult circumstances because he knows who God is. And you see this in verses 17 to 19. Habakkuk gives an honest assessment of his situation. The fig trees, vines, olive trees, fields, and flocks show no signs of maturation, no signs of a harvest, no signs of fruitfulness. Israel's hope seems thin, and yet Habakkuk resolves to rejoice in the present because he knows God's deliverance is coming. That's why he can say, I take joy in the God of my salvation, not in my circumstances, not in, again, a vague hope in the future that something good might happen. He takes hope, he takes joy in a person, in God, in the very being of God. So who is this God of salvation? Well, he says that the Lord is my strength, the strength of his people. And the Hebrew word for strength, according to Elizabeth Actemeyer, who wrote a commentary on Habakkuk, can be rendered army. So Israel does not, like the other nations, require a massive army to defend themselves. Because Israel has the Lord, who is their strength, who is their army. The Lord is the one who fights for Israel. The Lord is the one who gives his people feet like those of a deer, able to freely roam without fear of slipping. It's this idea of safety. So the Lord makes his people tread over the high places, which refers to mountains. So God is striding over mountains as a sign of his victory. And guess who's with him? His people. 
They tread along with him. This is the glory of what it means to be one of God's own. This is our heritage. Think about Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 to 23, where it says that God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Ephesians tells us that Christ has been exalted to the right hand of God and that his exaltation is our exaltation. The Father has put all things under the feet of Christ, all powers and principalities in this age and the next, and we as his body have him as our head. Therefore, we too in Christ share in his victory over all powers and principalities. We tread with him over the mountains. This is what it means for us to be, as the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8, 17, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. That's the royal calling of God's people. But there's a catch. Paul says in Romans 8, 17, in the next section, he says, we will be heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So we are royal heirs, but the path to our royal inheritance comes not through comfort, but the cross. This is what it means to follow Jesus. This was Jesus' path to glory. He was resurrected and lifted up and exalted to God's right hand. But before that, what had to happen? He came down in humility in the incarnation, and he subjected himself to a humiliating death on the cross. It's the cross and then resurrection. And it's the same thing for Habakkuk. Habakkuk, you're going to have to endure present suffering, trusting that God will deliver you in the end. This is what it means for the righteous to live by his faith, by his faith, by God's faithfulness to us. And it's this future hope that motivates our present faithfulness. God's going to put all things right. God's going to save his people. And what keeps us going is Lord's Day after Lord's Day, remembering who God is. Who God is. He is faithful. He is trustworthy. He will lift up our faces. He will exalt us. He will bring us that final victory. And we will see Mount Everest at our feet.